It's the final episode this season, and I'll be discussing disability, inequality, and education with a remarkable student from South London. William Carter struggled with school so much as a kid that he didn't learn to read until he was 13 years old. By 18, he'd achieved some of the highest A-level results his school had ever seen. In spite of the barriers imposed on him by severe dyslexia and dyspraxia, he went on to get a first-class honours degree from the University of Bristol and is now studying for a PhD at Berkeley College, California. I know firsthand what it's like to feel frustrated in a classroom when you're a kid and what a difference role models and passionate educators can make to young lives. William's academic turnaround is nothing short of amazing and although he was supported by some brilliant people along the way, Will says his experience only highlights how much stands in the way for kids who don't fit the mould at school. When you get these things, there are two things you can do. You can either say, I did it so anyone can and stand back and bring the yeah. ladder up above you. Yeah. Or you can say, I did it so I know the barriers in place for other people. A heads up, we'll be talking about some experiences around race, mental health and disability in this episode that some listeners may find upsetting. I'm Ian Wright and from something else, this is Everyday People. We start our story in Dulwich, South London. It's a leafy area with a village feel. It's got plenty of big, expensive houses, boutique shops and a handful of well-known private schools. It's one of those places where the difference between rich and poor and even in between is really marked. That's where William Carter grew up with his mum and his grandparents. As a little boy, William was keen to soak up and know about everything and his intelligence was obvious to those around him. But when William started school, things started to feel different for him and he realised he was different from his classmates. Growing up in Dulwich, I went to a local primary school. Mm -hmm. And one of the hard things there was, obviously you're going to a primary school that's predominantly white, predominantly Mm -hmm. middle to upper class. And so you go there and you immediately feel like you're an outsider or an alien. I remember when I was about four or five and I was starting to work out what race is. Like mm-hmm. what classes, you know, what cars were their parents driving? Right. I was like, oh, my mum's driving a, like a beat-up Vauxhall Astra. And I was looking right. at all them on Mercedes. And I remember the worst as it got was I was about five or six. And five or six is when you start to kind of learn how to read properly in school. Mm-hmm. You start to get alphabet. Mm-hmm. And I was struggling. And I mean, like, real, really struggling. Right. right. And I remember being at home in the bathtub. And I remember I tried to scrub my skin off. Oh, no. And I was trying to scrub my skin off because I thought it was the dark colour of my skin tone that was holding me back. What about your mental health in and around that time? You got to, I, I was, know I was, I was sent to young. a psychiatrist. I was sent to child and <laughs> mental health at five. Wow. Symptoms of anxiety and depression, age five. Who recognised that and why did they send you some? What, what, what was your problems you was having? My teachers and my parents, because I think it, I was isolating, so not making quite much friends. I was sad, I was disillusioned. My attendance was, you know the kids that turn up to the playground crying because they didn't want to go to school and or making things up and or saying they were ill and or trying to go home every time. And I think for me it was, people don't realise that we've learned is to be dyslexia, racism, all these things. It doesn't just affect how you learn, it affects your ability to make friends. And the two are so linked. Like if you don't have any friends, you don't want to be there. Exactly. You live with your your grandparents and your mum, but your Mm. your mum needed some extra help as well. So my mum has uh, specific learning disabilities and and special needs, and so it meant that, a bit like me, my my mum needed that extra help. Mm -hmm. But because of when she grew up, she didn't necessarily receive that. Uh. And so parenting me and and looking at me and my brother, it was a collective effort with my grandparents and my mum, but 
when you're in a playground and your mom can't join a conversation with the other mums, mm. your mom so you can't, can't make those friends. You can't make those friends. And so I think for me, growing up with my mum has made me very aware of not just academics, but how social life confidence can be tied to that. Yeah. And I know that even though my mum may not be as aware of what it means to go to Berkeley and Fulbright, I know she's proud of me. And I know mm. most of all, when I got those GCSEs, and when I proved I could do something, mm. I remember she telling me she doesn't care what I do, what GCSEs I get, but she's proud of me no matter what. And I think that it's, you know, I was asked before, oh, do you think you would have done better if you if you didn't have that mum or grandparents? And I think, no, they mm. they not only made me who I am, but they made me who I will be. And I'm so grateful for that. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's hear from your grandparents, William. William, you know, there's no words because we're just, we're just so proud of him. So desperately, proud, you know. desperately proud. When he started at primary, obviously he had the problems with not being able to read. Us going in, me with my daughter and my other daughter has been a great help as well. Going in and saying, well, you know something's not right because he is so bright, but he can't seem to be able to, can't get the, you know, even the basics of the reading and writing. And it, it just must have been so, so, so frustrating for him. He had one particular teacher who didn't believe in dyslexia or anything like that. And he just, he just, he just believed that Will was lazy and daydreaming, sort of complained about him. And, but Will would have nightmares. And the days that he had it, we, we, we obviously, that's when we found out something wasn't right. He'd wake up and wouldn't want to go to school. I went up and actually spoke to him. And I said, uh, well, do you know that Will actually thinks you think he's stupid? He said, I didn't say that. I said, no, but that's the way it comes across. And I can tell you now, almost word for word, what your lesson was that you had with him yesterday, because Will's gone through the whole lesson with me. And he was absolutely flabbergasted. You know, and when you when he talks about it now and when he's written essays at school, at secondary school, about how he felt, you know, one of his teachers at secondary school said, I was reading one of his essays and, he, you know, and it was saying about and how he felt about things. And she said, I sat there in tears. She said, just reading it, she said, because it was just so sad. When she said about you saying everything what happened in that lesson, you know, what the teacher said, what was that about, Will? He was actually my dyslexia tutor. Right. So when I was first diagnosed, I was sent to this guy who didn't believe in dyslexia and thought we were all stupid. And when you're there, like when he said, you know, I never said that. Mm. When you're a kid, you don't need to be told you're stupid in order to feel it. You can Absolutely. be made so. So Absolutely. if you don't get something, you don't get joined up words, you don't get syllables or whatever it is, and you're humiliated, you're made fun of, or the teacher encourages others to laugh at you. Yeah. It, it does it does ruin your confidence Absolutely. a bit. And so Absolutely. I think I had it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. 
And on those days, I did not want to go. It's like you're being set up to fail because you're being sent to a, a place with someone who's meant to help you. And not only are they not helping you, they're actually humiliating you yeah. whenever you learn. Can you tell us how it made you feel when you were finally diagnosed with severe dyslexia and dyspraxia? What was that like? I remember when they told me, I didn't quite know what it was, but it sounded like, I was like, oh, it's not to do with me then. In other words, <laughs> it's not my personality. It's not my... Did you, did you feel, did it make you feel a bit happier or something? Yeah, I kind of felt like, <laughs> almost became like my identity. Like the way people would ask me what I am or who I am. I said, oh, I'm dyslexic. And it became like, <laughs> like a weird, probably like a football team kind of thing. Like that was my people. Wow. That was who I am. But you still meet people who don't believe in it, who think right. it's about laziness, who think it's about working hard. And I think it made me more assertive in that it made me think, what, this is not about me. It's mm. not about my intelligence. It's about how I'm taught. And so what dyslexia and dyspraxia does is it's about mental, cognitive and physical coordination and, and the way you understand words, reading, most people, you know, you read from left to right and you go forward. Yep. But what if you read and the words are jumping around? Wow. And they're blurry and they're not making sense. Wow. And it's, a, it's like a puzzle. And then what dyspraxia does is it's about physically, it's about coordination. Football was always a challenge, stuff like that, coordination, like physical coordination. But it's also about mental coordination in the sense that things can get jumbled up in your head and go yeah. the back way around. So often when I'm speaking, I have to consciously make sure I'm saying things in the right order. What is it about learning that you were determined to, to want to do? And where did it come from? Where did you get your determination for learning from? Primary school, I absolutely hated. The more and more I was isolated, the more I acted out. People don't okay. realise is oftentimes when you're acting out, you're the class joker or whatnot. Mm. It's because of that fact that you don't, you don't get somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a tension there. When I knew I had to do something was when I was in the last few years of primary school. I was really asking for help and I started to get perhaps more assertive. And my school sent me to a course at a place called Sunshine House on how to avoid being a criminal. And I was about oh my 10. God. And I remember in the room, about 10 others, all black Caribbean boys, they were to leave early and I asked them why. And it was because they had to pick up their sisters or their brother or their mum. Mm. And each of them there were a young carer. Each of them were viewed through the lens of a criminal. And I remember then I thought, not only do I have to prove them wrong, but I have to change it. A few months ago, I was looking on Facebook and the news and I was Googling the people I was in that room with. More than half were either in prison. Okay. One of them had been stabbed and a few others were excluded from school. I was the only one who got GCSEs. A-levels, went to university. That's where my motivation comes from because I think there's not many of us that made it through, as it were. And I think considering I've come this far, that it's almost my responsibility to always remind mm. people of the people we give yeah. up on and the kids we give up on. Yeah. Even though Will started to gain confidence in year six, his progress faltered when he got to secondary school. So I went to secondary school Mm -hmm. Kingsdale Foundation School, which I really loved. And effectively, I was trying to ask for extra support. I was like, oh, I got like phonics lessons and dyslexia support right. I was in primary school. Can I have yeah. that? And my school was like, no. And I said, what do you mean no? And they said, well, you may not realise this, but in your classes, you're still getting C's and D's. We've got kids getting F's and E's. Otherwise, you're not doing bad enough to get support. How did you get to that level, not being able to read and, and, and write properly up to that stage? What was you doing to get to still get those grades? I, I was still getting C's and D's because it was not only guesswork, but it was, 
you know, I was probably doing about three, four sentences with my Macs. What I'd usually do, this was my, and I know a lot of people do this, I'd scribble on the page, random, random bits, mm. scribble on the page. And then my teacher afterwards go, well, what did you write down there? And then verbally I'd say it. I'd say, oh, that's what I wrote down there. And the teacher would say, right. oh, that's what you meant. Oh, you got this grade. I was always verbally confident. Back in a moment. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Will was desperate to achieve the potential that he knew he had. And it was through his learning about politics and citizenship in year nine that he realised he could make a change. I was about 13, around that age, and I still couldn't properly read and write. Mm. And in my citizenship class with Miss Ray and Jeff, the citizenship teachers, they taught me about a thing called the Disability Discrimination Act. And I thought, that sounds cool. And she printed a copy out. She probably shouldn't have done this. She printed a copy out for me at lunchtime. I remember looking at it and I couldn't really read it. It was a lot of words, but I thought, this sounds official. So I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll go to the library. And I went to the library and got a highlighter pen. And I highlighted random sections of the app Mm. to make it look like I read it. And I wrote random notes in because I thought, this will make it look official. And I went to the the SEN coordinator at lunchtime. And I put it it on the table in front of him. And I said... Read what it says here and here. And I was lying because I obviously hadn't read it. Oh my gosh. Did you, I, Will, did you have any idea of what you highlighted? No, it was ra- ra- <laughs> random. It was random. But I, uh, but I knew that I knew what it, what it was likely to say. And I said, read yes. here, here and here. This is saying that I need a laptop in my classes. Right. I need extra time. And I need a teaching assistant. And he was smiling like, uh. And eventually from that meeting, and my mum and my um, grandma coming in, I managed to get a laptop for class and a teaching assistant. Mm. in all my classes because of that. Right. How did the laptop help? Because I know it It literally it changed, it changed everything. It changed my life. It changed it, your life. It felt like people could hear and see me. I could finally write something down and have it be understood to the world. So now you're in a position where you can learn, people can understand you. You, you don't feel like how you felt, whether people thought you were stupid or not, whatever it is. Tell me about the debate team. You started a debate team. When I was in secondary school and I was going to A-levels, I got more confident. My uh, teacher came up to me and went, well, we don't have a debate team and we kind of want to start one and we think it would right. be a good idea to, for you to join it. I was like the first member to agree to join it. I remember going there and winning my first debate. And I won it against, <laughs> it was a like grammar school in, 
I think West London somewhere. And I remember yeah. the feeling of these were kids at age 11 could pass a test saying they were smart. Right. At age 11, I couldn't read or write. And right. yeah, I'm here and I'm being you at this debate. I mean, you probably know this. It's like it's like when you're in sport or something. When you, when you know you've achieved something despite the odds and when you know you've achieved something and it's yours yes. and it was one fair and square and yes. no one can take that away from you. Mm. It's like you want to look at everyone that's doubted you and just look them in the eye and say, see, this is what happens yeah. when you yeah. put people down. Think of what happens when you lift them up. It's funny. I tell you because... It's really strange because with my mum, I remember my mum used to say something to me, William, about um, many are called and few are chosen, but she wasn't saying it in a way where she was trying to, to motivate me because I had so many trials, William, and failed in all of them. And mm -hmm. I don't know why. The only trial I ever got through, and I tell this story all the time, was the one at Crystal Palace. Mm -hmm. And my mum used to say things to me and it was so nasty. And she used to say that many are called and few are chosen. You're not one of the chosen. And I remember when I got to Crystal Palace and got through that trial, because I had a two-week trial, and the first person I phoned was my mum. And I only started speaking about this recently with everything I'm doing. The first person I phoned was my mum, and I was confused because I didn't know, William, if I was phoning her to say, see, yes, I can. Because the person you're meant to love the most, I didn't get hardly any, any support from. So I phoned her, and we were both obviously, I was, we was both crying because my dream is now hopefully going to be realised. But like, I think I genuinely think I phoned her to say, see, yes, I did. You, you doubted me more than anybody else. And I done it. I don't, I, I still, even up to this day, don't know why I called her first. Cause she was one of the people that gave me the least amount of, of encouragement. It wasn't only having to prove people wrong. It was me consciously having to move away mm -hmm. from always tying my mental health to others' views of me and expectations. You know, I got my A-levels. Yes. And I remember getting one of the best A-level results. I think at the time, the best A-level results the school had ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine, mate? No! I got there and people thought I was an idiot, stupid, couldn't read. And I got with their best A-level results the school had ever seen. I got two A-stars and an A. And the A-star in politics, I nearly got 100%. I, bit, I did get 100%. And I remember thinking, damn, I remember swearing, I think like, damn, I remember looking at it thinking, what? <laughs> but you know what put me back to reality? What? I got out of that room and I was speaking to one of my friends and someone else about it. They said, oh, that's good. Your white side came through. And I said, <gasps> oh. what do you mean? And they said, well, you struggled so much and now you got good grades. So that's your white side coming through. Oh my God. And so even in that celebration, I was- hey, Someone brought you down. Someone brought you down to a, They brought you down to a color. Even then, I remember feeling like there's still work to be done, but no one could take that. And I remember cycling home and that feeling when you open the door and I show them my grades <laughs> and just like, you know, family melted, I was melting away. It was just the feeling of, like, even though they brought me down, no one could bring me down to that point again. You know what? We, we need to hear from um, one of your mentors, Mrs. Boyd. Yeah. Let's hear She's from my closest mentor. William sat his GCSEs. He didn't get the best of GCSEs. When I mean the best, we had students maybe who were getting 15 A stars, 10 A stars, 9 A stars. I remember when he came up to me, he was really worried. He was crying. He was saying that, oh my God, he's not going to be able to do his A levels. He could have just given up. He could have just said no. And that was it. He didn't. He fought. And from the day one, he started his A levels. He was a fighter. He was here at school well beyond Call of Duty. He was here late. He was here Saturday. He was here Sunday. He worked really, really hard. I think when William got his A-levels after his GCSE, I think it was a shock 
to not just him, I think to a lot of people, this young individual who has made a difference. He doesn't hide that he was different from his friends. He talk about with a passion that I, we can do it. You can do it. If you imagine as a young child, you've been told all through your life, you're not able, you haven't got the ability. He's been told that all through his life. He hasn't had it easy. And I do think, and I always say to him, if he went into politics, he'll make a difference in society. And sometimes I talk about and I look at him, it's very tearful. It's very sad and it's very good because he's worked so hard and he's never also forgotten people who's done so much for him. He cares about so much other people. It was such a shame that he had to go through all that stage in the life that we are. But he made a difference. He made a difference to me. He made a difference to a lot of other staff and a lot of other teachers. He made a difference to young children. I mean, the school don't stop talking about him. You know, look at him. He's like a ripple on the water. You touch it, it spreads. It spreads to everybody. You know, he'd be someone that I would never, ever forget. He'd be someone that the school would never forget. She got me, Will. <laughs> she got me too. Like... <laughs> I had to do an interview to get into a sixth form to do A-levels. But I did the interview, and the guy giving the interview, he said to me, I don't think we can let you into the school. And I said, what do you mean? I've, I've come from the school since since I was 11. Like, I want to stay in for A-level. Your grades aren't good enough, mate. I don't think you'll, I don't think you'll make it. And I remember coming to Miss Boyd, as she said, I remember crying. Mm. And I went to Miss Boyd, and I went to the head teacher, Mr. Morrison. And you know what Ms. Boyd said? She said, what? you'll be in the school longer than that teacher ever will. And, and, and so that was the negativity just off of the GCSEs? I got one A, mm-hmm. one A star, three A's and seven B's. And I was made to feel shameful of that because even though I thought I did well and I worked my arse off to get those grades, mm-hmm. going from age 13 to 16, doing all that learning for all the mm-hmm. edu- in that time, because there were kids getting 15 A stars or however much, I still thought, well, I can't make it to these universities. And Miss Boyd, she's like, she, even now I text her. She's on my phone. I've got a personal mm. number saved, her work number saved. <laughs> no matter how far you get away from this school, she's one of those people who you always go back to. So now on to uni. We all got into Bristol University to study politics and international relations. Bristol has been one of the top universities in the UK for over a hundred years, and it's a tough one to get into. I thought, well, they were going to think I'm stupid because I can't write well. So I overcompensated. So I was kind of really confident in class and seminars. Well, and wait, I, one step before you go on, Will, do you, 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 you use that word a lot, think I'm stupid. Do, do you constantly think that at mm. some stage? Is that something that will never it, go away with you? Do you I think? think it's always ingrained in me from the way I was treated in primary school. It's always, I always feel like, you know, they'll find out my fraud when they find out I can't read. They'll ask me to read in class and I won't be able to. What was weird about university is afterwards I remember speaking to one of my professors about it and he was like, Will, you do realise that no one else here knows you're dyslexic. No one else here knows the struggles you've been through. All they'll see is this boy who speaks a lot or confident boy. Mm. And that surprised me because I can't illustrate enough what it was like to always being told you weren't capable. It, mm. It's something that I'll never, I'll be able to disprove for others before I'm able to disprove it for myself. Do you think that's more important to you now? Yeah, because I've realised that myself will come in time, but at the minute it's what's important to me is is using my story and my position to actually educate the professors, the teachers, 
the staff, the parents on what dyslexia is, what autism is, what dyspraxia mm. is. Because not only do I not want people going through what I went through, but better than that, if I've had an opportunity, I want it available to them. Whilst at Bristol, William continued to make a big impression on his educators, including Professor Jonathan Floyd. The thing you have to understand about Will is he doesn't just experience these things and battle them and work with them. He's, he's always analysing the system. He's always analysing the system. He's always sharing his analysis with you and he's always thinking how the system could be redesigned. I can't think of anything he's gone through in the last five years where he hasn't done those things, where he hasn't analysed, why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? How could we change it for everybody else? This is what really marks him out, not so much the difficulties he encounters, but the way he really tries to change the system so that others don't encounter those difficulties. He's somebody who's curious and who's sharp and who's, you know, has a sense of humour about these things. You got a first class degree. So I'm t honestly, I feel so proud of myself. I'm just trying to see. I'm just looking at you. You got a first class degree. What's your family's reaction? I remember I told my family, and soon after I told my family, I rang up Miss Boyd. And then she had a pretty much similar reaction to that. She was just like... <laughs> that special teacher, man. When you're being supported after all of that, all of the barriers put in front of you, mm. it means so much. It just feels so, it's so warm, man. I can't describe yeah. it any other way. And you know something, it's, it's, it's amazing listening, you know, the, the world of academia. What, what's it like? What does it really mean to be an academic? Because like I say, I my main problem for me is like, I always felt like I was catching up from a reading and writing perspective. And like I said, I had my teacher, Mr. Pigden, who helped me and then put me back in the class. And when I've dropped back and then I caught up and then I was fine. Obviously nowhere near the troubles that you had, but I always felt anxious when I started doing television because people say things like, oh my God, he can't string a sentence together. You know what I mean? And my main problem was my, my confidence. You know what I mean? Because I didn't, do, I, I wasn't academic, I didn't do that stuff. You know, I left school very early, left school at 14. So listening to you, listening to how unbelievably clever and smart you are, right? What's it like? What's it mean? What's it mean to be an academic? It's, so when Especially I got- Especially what you've been through. When I got to Berkeley, I got here and in you know, pandemic, everything's changing. I got here and, I was, and I'm into class and I log in virtually and whatnot and they say, for each of my classes, book a week. I'm like, excuse me? No, yeah, book a week. That's three you know books something? We week. have to rewind there, man, because you can't just throw in Literally. a university like Berkeley and <laughs> we just carry on. You've got to say, how did, how's that come about? So how's Berkeley come about, bro? You can't just throw in a university. You'd left Bristol and throw in a university like Berkeley and just say, so when we went to Berkeley, tell me about that, man. When you got the letter, what happened? How did you, what's I went there for study abroad for a year and I loved it, but I was only an exchange student. Mm -hmm. And I felt like this is a place where the resources where I want to go study. I want to go study at one of these big institutions in America. And I remember thinking, all right, I need funding because you know, my family can't afford anything mm -hmm. like that. And so at the same time I applied for Berkeley, I applied for the Fulbright Scholarship. And what was interesting is when I applied the personal statement I used for both, I centered it on my experience of being dyslexic, dyspraxic. I centered it on my experience of having to look after my mum. I centered it on like who I was. I got an interview for Fulbright and for Berkeley. And like, the only way to describe it is, have you ever seen the film Billy Elliot? 
Have you ever seen yeah, that film? Absolutely. You brilliant. know when yeah, he's yeah, asked yeah. what it feels like to dance and he says it feels like electricity. It feels like yes. and that moment. For me, it was like my Billy Elliot moment when I'm there mm. in front of these people and I just like, I don't think I stopped talking. It was like my soul came out of my <laughs> mouth and I was like, I, I, I like, I made him aware of everything. I spoke of everything. Yes. Did the Berkeley interview, the same thing happened. And then I got a letter coming through and I was in class and I, I saw my email and it said, congratulations, you're admitted to the Berkeley class. And my heart stopped. I was like trying to hide how emotional it was for me. But then the thing that topped it off for me, and I'm getting upset, I'm going to have to try and stop myself, was Fulbright then sent me an email. Mm. And they said, congratulations, we are going to offer you a Fulbright scholarship, the most prestigious scholarship, academic scholarship you can get. But then more than that, was a follow-up email. They made me the alumni scholarship, meaning it's the only one in the country. And I, it was... Did you, did you cry? I cried and I cried. And it was one of those things where people comforted me, but they didn't know how raw it was for me. Do you know what I mean? How? Yes. Did you, what, was you flooding back to a child? Was you, was... I went back to when I was in the bathtub. Scrubbing. And I was scrubbing my skin. I was looking at my skin. And I was just, I'm proud. Mm. And I remember that feeling of feeling comfortable in your skin. And I remember them feeling all my A-levels and them saying it's your white side coming through. And I remember feeling this moment when I got full round Berkeley, no one's taking this away from me. Mm. And I'm a mixed race, dyslexic, dyspraxic individual. And I was like, this is who I am and this is where I got. And I remember then they sent through the official letter Fulbright and they used this word. They said, we picked you because of your exceptional ambassadorial qualities. I remember thinking about that and thinking about where I got through. And I remember thinking with all of this stuff that even though I got it, even though I got this, I thought how many other mixed race, just like just Brexit working class kids are going to get this opportunity. And so I knew that I wouldn't be comfortable with this opportunity if I didn't immediately try and make it work for other people. Now studying in California, William has wasted no time in carving out an inclusive space for himself and future generations. What's it like in America and your educational needs? Are they okay with what you need and to get you to, what you know, are, are, what are they like? Are you still doing your stuff where you're Matt, not letting Matt, people you know don't, stuff? You, you don't you're even... sneaking in offices and listening to people. No, literally, <laughs> literally, literally, literally. I got listening, here, yeah. I got off the plane and I started the day afterwards. I got in on a Sunday and I started at Berkeley on the Monday and I was fucking tired and I was doing it all. It's a bit week and I was like, oh, but I need an audio book. I'm like, what do you mean? Mm. And I said, you know, and they were like, oh, no, you don't. Just just work harder. I was like, oh, oh gosh. So even though I got to Berkeley, I got to this le- this high level. Yeah. I couldn't cope and it wasn't accessible to me. So immediately from the get-go at Berkeley, I thought I could have gone about two ways. Mm. I write a complaint, I get lawyers involved, do it all and, and do it my way. But then how does it help other people? Mm-hmm. And it causes friction. So what I'll do mm. is I'm going to try and bring my department and my school to be more accessible and what I mean by that is, is that you can have dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism, whatever learning difference you have, and the education you receive here is still accessible to you. In other words, mm. I want you to feel included here, mm. even though I don't. And there's his colleague, Lakshmi. 
So Will was working within the anti-racist working group in his department and was wanting to bring in practices and frameworks such as universal design for learning, which I'm in, you know, I've done extensive work in that area. And so he wanted his department to kind of gain knowledge and understanding that would help disabled students get a greater educational experience. And I think Will was a very strong advocate in pushing forth the fact that this was needed. Those voices should be heard. Yeah, I'm very much that in awe of some of the things that he has done. I'm like, you go, Will, that's the way to do it. I remember when I was first referred to Lakshmi and she's studying a PhD in special educational needs, working mm -hmm. with young kids with disabilities. And I remember speaking to her and she was like, there are things that I teach in the classroom to kids that these professors should be teaching to each students. In other words, there are ways of teaching, there are strategies for teaching that are inclusive of people with autism, dyspraxia, yeah. dyslexia, anxiety, trauma. And working with her, we've been able to put a plan in place. The first time my university in the history of Berkeley has ever done this. Everything's changing. Because of you? Yeah, unlatch me, it's what we're doing. Oh what my I'm gosh. Doing. What are you most proud of across all your achievements up to this point? I'll tell you what I'm most proud of and it's also what upsets me most. Mm. After I did the this morning interview in the Radio 4 interview, I got messages from three mums on LinkedIn who wrote to me and said their kids dyslexic, autistic, dyspraxic, and their kids were self-harming because they hate school, because they've been made to feel stupid, because they've been made to feel dumb. And they wrote to me and they said, can you help my son? What did you do to overcome? What did you do to get out? And it made me cry like nothing else because I wrote them back and I said, I am so, so, so sorry you're going through this, but I haven't overcome anything. And ever since I am still dealing and processing and strategizing with what I've got. Throughout school, you're told the most important thing is they just passively receive all the information they're telling you, books, films, maths, whatever it is. I said the most powerful thing your son can do is find a way, find a strategy to learn even 10% of that. Because I said, when you learn what it is to learn, when you mm. learn how to strategize, when you have your laptop, when you have your dictaphone, no one can take that away from you. And so I said, don't focus in on the grades. Don't focus in on what you should know. Focus on learning how mm -hmm. to how to strategize that. And, it's, and it was so, because you're still going through it and still processing yeah. that. Yeah. It's one of the hardest things in the world when people difficult. ask you, yeah. how did you overcome that? But like, you know, if you've mm -hmm. seen domestic abuse, all these kids that are going through all the you yeah. know horrible things you went through because it takes you back there. And you want to tell them that it's still hard, but you can't. You can't tell no. them that it will be hard. Or that you have to Can give them imagine? hope. Absolutely. You have to give them hope. You have to, And that's one of the hardest things for your mental health and your own peace mm. is to give others hope when you may not have that. And that's one of the hardest things. But mm. that's what I'm, mo I'm most proud of the fact that yeah. these mums could see me and these kids could see me. Yeah, visual and, representation. And think, damn, that's someone I want to... I can do that. I can do that. When you get these things, there are two things you can do. You can either say, I did it so anyone can and stand back and bring the yeah. ladder up above you. Yeah. Or you can say, I did it so I know the barriers in place for other people. Mm. They asked me when I got this Fulbright, 
is there any acknowledgements or dedication that you want to, you know, give anything to this award to? Mm. And I thought, well, I don't want to dedicate this award to my family or my friends. I want to dedicate my life, and I think I will. Mm. Is that where you are? Yeah. That sounds cool, bro. I'm very That's proud me. of you, my friend. You make me feel very proud and humble, man, because I can't I can't even, you know, listening to you and, and the journey and what you... It's very difficult when you... The problems I had at school was just because of me, me and not paying attention. But to know what you've been through, to get to where you've got to and learn in a way what makes it, made it happen for you, get to it. I, I can't sit here and tell you how much I admire you, my friend, because it's, it's more difficult than anything that I can ever think of simply because it's everybody's right to be able to, to learn. And if you've got difficulties in doing that and there's no avenues, I, I, honestly, I don't know what to say apart from I'm so proud of you. I couldn't be any proud of you if you was my own son. You know, what you've done. It's an amazing thing. I love the fact that I'm, you, I'm, you're my friend now. So I'm going to say, yeah, my friend. Yeah, my mate William. Yeah, William Carl. Is it Berkeley? Yeah. <laughs> my mate William's at Berkeley. So proud of him. You know, I can't thank you enough. I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on and sharing that with us because I'm sure that will help. A lot of people will. A lot of people. I think for me, it, it's... It's about realising, and I want to say this to anyone who's the parents of anyone with dyslexia or dyspraxia, it's humiliation can stay with people for life. Mm -hmm. And I want people to realise when they make comments, are you lazy, you need to work mm -hmm. harder, you're not smart enough. Kids might not react to it then and there, but they could react to the it 10 years, yeah. 15 years. Yeah. And that feeling... It's like what Miss Boyd said, that feeling of being told you can't all the time sticks with you. And so I want people to be very, very, very aware with all kids, but especially kids with special needs, of what you say to them, but above all, how you make them feel. Yeah. Because like what that old guy used to say to me, he never called me stupid, but he makes you make me feel that. Be very aware of how you're making these kids feel because there's a fine line, as I said, between being expelled, between going to prison mm. and getting a Fulbright and going to Berkeley. Ian Wright's Everyday People is a Something Else production. Hosted by me, Ian Wright. The series producer is Jade Scott. This episode was produced by Zoe Edwards. Our assistant producer is Grace Laker. Our executive producer is Ollie Wilson. The sound and mix engineer is Josh Gibbs. With thanks to Chris Skinner and Steve Ackerman.